Thank you, brother. If you would, take your Bible and turn to 1 John chapter 2. If you're a first-time guest with us here today, we're certainly glad that you are here. 1 John chapter 2. Now, there are times in our lives, momentous occasions, that cause us to pause and reflect about life, about our communities. Um, Oftentimes, those can be holidays. They can be times of great success or great trial, great failure, the, the loss of a loved one, the birth of a child, starting a new job, major world events, personal failure. Those circumstances cause us to realize and to reckon with our lives. And all too often, those circumstances and their negative effect can bring us low. We can get discouraged easily by circumstance. We look out and we see the world in the broken state that it is in. We grieve the loss of a, a job or career. We lament the wayward child. We, we realize that far too often we have neglected individually as the saints of God the service of the Lord. And so we determine in our own strength and in our own resolutions just to do better than what we've done before. And the discouragement that follows that is that we come months later and that we find that we're still struggling with contentment and with circumstances and with failures in our lives respectively. And we wonder, how can, how can we change things? How can we make the world a better place? How can we be more fulfilled in our relationship with Christ? Well, the, 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 the question that we really ask is, What is the real reason that in so many moments throughout our lives as we pause to look back and as we think about the future even, we find that there is not satisfaction in this life? Well, the Bible speaks with crystal clarity to the singular problem that each of us here today face. And that problem is that we have broken fellowship with the Creator and Sustainer of all things. We sang this morning, uh, Come Thou Fount, and the words, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God that I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for Thy courts above. It's interesting how clearly this is the point, the reality that we have broken fellowship with God and the thing that will bring us real joy in this life. And as we think about life both in the past and in future terms, what really is the solution is not merely that we would do all of the right things, but that we would have the right relationship. That we would be in fellowship with God. And that's been the point that John has been pressing into the church in his writing. Verse 3 makes it clear, "...that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us." And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. The only lasting joy is found in fellowship with the Father and with His Son. With that in mind, if you would do honor to the reading of God's Word this morning. John writing here, continuing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, starting in verse 1 of chapter 2. My little children... 
I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in Him. Whoever says He abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which He walked. This is the Word of God to you and I today. Beloved, would you pray with me? Father God, we come before You knowing that we are sinful people, knowing that we need Your mercy and grace every moment of our lives. And Father, we beg that as You pour out Your grace, we would respond rightly in worship, in spirit, and in truth praising You for what You alone could accomplish in our lives. Father, would You give us wisdom and would You write these truths upon all of our hearts. In Christ's name, Amen. You may be seated. I don't know if I'm alone here, but I find that we live in a self-help world. A world of 12 steps, a thousand new paradigms, a thousand new ways of making life right. And yet here John says... That you may reorganize your life a thousand times. You may make a thousand resolutions. You may commit yourself to be the most and fill in the blank whatever program you want to follow. But there will be no lasting joy there. There will be no lasting joy unless you find rest in Christ and in Christ alone. This is the theme of John's writing, not only in this letter, but also in his gospel, the New Testament passage that we read earlier this morning together. I have said these things, Jesus says, to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. The the way that we can have real lasting joy in this life is to rest in the one who has overcome everything in the universe. See, the the point of Scripture is to constantly point us back to that relationship with Jesus. To show us that through grace, we can have lasting fellowship and joy with God regardless of our circumstance. It's what the Bible speaks of. In fact, what we find in the Hall of Faith, Hebrews chapter 11, a well-known portion of scripture is a list that really exemplifies this reality every person who is listed in the hall of faith in hebrews chapter 11 is a person who had to face a broken difficult world much like the world that you face everyone had to face the reality of the world as it is with all of its sinful frailties with all of the spiritual warfare with all of the trials and the temptations and yet if we look at these heroes of the faith, as we look at their lives, we have to notice that something marked every one of their lives. And it wasn't ease. It wasn't wonderful circumstances. What marked their lives was not that their circumstances were perfect. What marks their life and their stories is that they trusted and obeyed the living God. That they had faith to follow 
God. What marks their lives is that the core of who they were did not rest on the things that were happening externally outside of them, but what the reality of their peace and joy and marvelous obedience to God was marked by centering everything that they were on who God revealed himself to be and what he called them to do. If we think about the acts that they, uh, uh, that, that, that they committed, that they accomplished, if we think about every one of these that were listed out here, Abel offered the best parts of the lamb, a sacrifice as God had called him. Enoch truly loved God and walked with him. Noah believed God's warning that God was going to destroy evil. Noah didn't say, now God, is humanity really depraved? He didn't argue the doctrine of total depravity. He built a ship in light of that doctrine and trusted that God was actually going to exact judgment rightfully upon the earth. Abraham left the security of his homeland. Sarah, even though she was very old, trusted that God could bring her a child. Isaac blessed his sons Jacob and Esau. Jacob blessed his grandsons Ephraim and Manasseh. Joseph used his position in, his, in Egypt to bless his family and he let go of, the, uh, uh, of bitterness. Moses refused to indulge in the pleasures of this present life and instead left being the king's grandson and led the Hebrew people out of bondage. Rahab helped the Israelite spies escape Jericho. Gideon, Barak, Samson, they performed acts of heroism. David slew Goliath the giant. Samuel led the people of Israel as a judge and as a prophet. And the question is, did they do these things because the circumstances of their lives aligned perfectly? No. They did these things because they were resting on the one that they could not see. In fact, Hebrews 11 verse 27 records that he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Faith makes all of the difference. The, the Bible teaches us to live by faith. It, it's not about knowing everything that will happen tomorrow. It's not about commentating on every circumstance and every condition of the world. Far too often I find that pastors are prone to indulge themselves in every little nuanced conversation about what is going on in the world. And beloved, all of those things may uh, th there may be helpful things that Scripture has to say to the circumstances that are passing away, but we do know this with all certainty, that every circumstance is passing away. But what does not pass away is the Word of God and the Gospel of Christ. It endures forever. And so if we are going to fill our pulpits with something meaningful, we must fill it with what endures, with the actual Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. Our message is not conditioned on circumstance. It's not about telling you that everything will be okay, that circumstances will get better. The number of times that as a pastor I have had people come under the burden of heavy circumstances and I can feel the weight of what they really want from me is for me to tell them your circumstances tomorrow are going to be better. But I refuse because God hasn't revealed that to me. I can't tell you if the circumstances tomorrow, friends, will be better than they are today. 
But what I can tell you is this. That Christ is ruling and reigning at the right hand of God the Father. And that He has conquered every adversary that would stand in the way of our fellowship to Him. The Gospel proclaims that no matter what happens, whatever tomorrow brings, if you are right with God, if you have fellowship with Him, nothing else will really matter. If we are right with God, the whole creation can rage against us and we can endure. That doesn't mean it won't be difficult. It doesn't mean we won't suffer heartache. It doesn't mean that at times we won't cry out to God in anguish in those moments. But we will have God to cry out to. If we are right with God, we can look ahead and say, What can man do to me? strikes me that in Proverbs 31, the, the, the virtue, virtuous woman there is noted as one who looks at the days ahead and laughs. And she does so because she knows that she has fellowship with God. The gospel is not a gospel that fixes all of our troubles in this life. It is not a gospel that erases the consequences of our rebellion in the here and now horizontal circumstance. It is, however, a gospel that places in us the abiding spirit of the living God of heaven such that we have deep joy that regardless of our circumstance, we cannot be brought low. So the thing that really matters, the question that we really must ask, is are we right with God? Do we really have fellowship with Him? Are we really walking with Him? And if that question makes you puff your chest up and say, yes, if you think that your fellowship is conditioned upon something that you do, if you in pride say, of course, out of anybody, I would be right with God. I don't think that you get the point of this text. We, we do have joy that we have been made right with God and that we have fellowship with Him and that we can have joy in Him. But beloved, it is not by our strength. It is by His grace alone. So are you finding joy in Him and in Him alone today, friend? As we look through this list of Hebrews 11, 11, we see that God calls His saints to do really hard work. God puts His saints in really hard circumstances. God, in fact, does give His people often more than they can bear. But He gives them grace nonetheless. Often, when we find uh, the, the, the saint in the forefront of Scripture... These people in Hebrews chapter 11, what we find is God calling them to live a life that to natural man does not make sense. I mean, if God showed up to you this this afternoon and said, okay, and this is a great question to ask in West Texas. If he showed up to you and said, Braxton, the whole world is full of sin. And I'm going to destroy it. Now, the Noetic Covenant, we're, we're not going to argue that out. Uh, but, but, but I want you to build a ship. Would you say, oh, yeah, absolutely. I'll quit my job. I, I'll get to work on that. Or, or would there be difficulty in, that seems like a really weird plan, Lord. That seems like a really odd set of providence for me. 
I think you need to redraft your plan according to my thinking. I think far too often that is what our hearts do. But what we find in the hall of faith is people that as they hear the words of God, they don't puff up, they don't get angry, they submit to Him. They realize that the circumstances that God is leading them through may be difficult, but because they have genuine fellowship with the living God, all of these things will work out for His glory and ultimately for their deliverance. And this is what John is really dealing with as he writes here in John chapter 2. John, by the time he is writing, and I know I've mentioned this, but I'm going to mention it several times again. John was an old man by the time of this writing. He, he writes later on speaking of, uh, of his children, even in verse 1 here, speaking of his children, individuals who were beloved in the faith. These people he had seen come to Christ and he'd seen them grow up in the faith. And he knew that he wasn't going to be in this world forever. And he knew that the church would face difficulty and, and, and difficult circumstances. He knew that the human frame is very, very trite. And, and that it shifts often. And so what can he say to a church that he knows as he's departing, that he knows is going to experience difficulty? What can he say to a church that he knows with all certainty, if he has read the Old Testament, he knows that the God of the heavens is not going to spare them difficulty and trials and bad circumstance. He's not done that for his people in the past. So he's not going to do that for his church in this life, in the future. So what can John say? Well, he says this, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. What encouragement. As John looks at the world, as he looks back over his life, and I believe that this is one of those moments the way that I began. Uh, we come to these momentous occasions in our lives and we look back over what God has done in our lives. And then we look forward and we, we wonder what God is going to do in our lives. And we start to reckon with and talk with people about what life entails and all that it is. And that's what's going on with John as he looks back over the days behind him and he's, as he looks forward knowing that his beloved brothers and sisters in Christ are going to experience problems. He reckons with this reality, I think, that we fall into one or two of two ditches in our lives. One is complacency, and the other is hopelessness. In light of our circumstance, as we, as we internalize and digest our circumstance, we either become complacent or we become hopeless. And most of us go back and forth between the two. In one moment... We're ready to throw up our hands and say, don't worry about a thing, every, it's all going to work out. But the next moment, we see another shifting circumstance, and we're worried that everything in our life is going to fall apart. And knowing that that is the reality in light of the circumstances of a difficult world and of sinful people, he gives us two things, primarily overriding in these two verses. 
One, he gives us command, a commandment. And the other, he gives us comfort. And we need both, don't we? There's not a person in this room this morning that doesn't need the commandments of God, that doesn't need the imperatives of the New Testament to move us along, to keep us from complacency. The commandments, the imperatives of God are not there to rain on your parade. They're there to keep you out of the ditch of complacency and living a life that does not honor God. But we also need the kindness of God in comforting us, in encouraging us, knowing that we are so prone to hopelessness. John speaks in both directions, in commandment and in comfort. John says, I will be leaving soon. And no matter what, no matter what happens in the days ahead, no matter what happens socially or politically, in your family, with your finances, no matter the circumstance with your health, the one thing that matters, beloved, is this, that you actually walk with God. That you actually have real, genuine, abiding fellowship with Him. That you maintain that fellowship with Him above everything else in all of creation. And if you do that, if you abide in Christ, Every other circumstance becomes secondary. Doesn't mean it won't be difficult. Doesn't mean you won't shed tears. But it does mean that you will be sustained by the grace that only He can bring. And someone will rightly say on the heels of that declaration, yes, but how? How do we abide? How, how do we digest these things? Well, one, we have to see clearly the commandment and the comfort. One, first one, the command is, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And the comfort is this. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He is the propitiation the propitiator uh, for our sins, and not, uh, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now there's a large bit of doctrine in these verses, and we'll get to that next week. But the simple practical use is that we would see the command and the comfort of God. That, that our hearts would be encouraged to know not to fall into complacency or hopelessness, but to live in the imperatives of the Word of God and to be comforted by the words of God. If we are to walk with God, the first command in here is simply this, and this is where we will spend the bulk of our time, so that you may not sin. And if we're not going to sin, I think there's something that we really need to settle. And that is simply this. What is sin? Is sin just a list of things that different political movements say are bad? Is sin what our parents determine is immoral? Is sin merely something that makes us uncomfortable? And why shouldn't we sin? Those questions must permeate our minds as we lean into the command of this text. And, and simply put, sin is to do anything that God forbids or to fail to do anything that God positively commands. 
It is to miss the mark of worshiping God with our whole heart, with our whole mind, and with all of our strength. Sin is the missing the mark of God's law. Sin is disobeying our conscience. Every one of us that are here today, we have this little like spiritual check engine light in our brain that as we get ready to do something, it's called conscience, and it either, it either convicts us or it exonerates us. It either says what you are about to do is a bad idea. Or it says, no, go ahead. And, and, and what we find is that sin ultimately is, is dishonoring God. It's dishonoring the law of God, but it's also dishonoring or disobeying our own inward conscience that God has given us. We can sin against our own conscience. It was Martin Luther, when he was asked at the Diet of Worms, to recant all of his teaching of justification by faith alone and the like that was really bothering a lot of magisterial uh, people inside the Catholic Church. It, it was he who said, it is neither right nor safe to go against conscience. It is only when the Word of God or by evident reason that I am convicted that something is, is, is wrong that I can recant. I can't go against my conscience. We see clearly in that illustration that we can sin against our own conscience. Sin means to live our lives governed by the spirit of the age and not by the spirit of God and the truth of God. There are so many people who stand in pulpits who claim to be Christians, but when you talk about what sin really is, Sin isn't defined by what offends God. Sin is defined by what offends the spirit of the age. It's not sin if our society says it's sin. It's sin if God calls it sin. Right. Sin means that we don't check our conscience or our works to the words of God. You see, every one of us have a conscience that is marred in some form or fashion. And we should listen to our conscience, but our conscience is not ultimate. God is ultimate, and His Word is the final authority. Amen. So we must live according to what He thinks is right, not according to what we think is right. We are not to set ourselves up as our own authority. Sin is ultimately rebellion against the sovereignty of Almighty God. Sin is, is wanting autonomy from God. And beloved, I promise you that the church is full of different, subtle, nuanced theologies that will teach you that you can undermine the sovereignty of God and you're okay. But I promise you this, the Bible never teaches you that. Sin means to live under the authority of a king, and that king is not you. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. I think in our day and age, sin is not so much marked by opposition outright to God, although that's evident in our day and age. I think that the... the most frequent expression of sin in our day and age is this, not to think about God at all. To come to the bargaining, bargaining table of how to create a society, of how to govern a nation, and to ask questions, well, what makes sense to us? What will we like? What do we find useful? And even in asking those questions, we have missed the mark 
and sinned against a holy God. To live our lives as unto ourselves and not as, uh, as unto God with Him at the center is to sin. Now all of that is in the negative. There is also the positive that, that we must live our lives not only not doing the things that dishonor God, but also, as I said earlier, doing what brings Him glory. I think so many Christians are content with coming in and sitting in a pew and believing, well, I haven't done the list of bad things. Beloved, that won't be the question that's asked on the Day of Judgment. We will also be asked, have you done what Christ has called you to do? Have you lived your life for His glory? And real fellowship comes in surrendering to the imperatives of Scripture. Now, we don't gain salvation. I'm not making that argument, obviously through our following the imperatives of Scripture, but we do glorify Him as we honor His commands. And I don't know why, but that has become such a controversial thing in the church today, hasn't it? There are so many people who will say, well, don't heap that legalism on me. John would say, my dear friends, and I think he would say it in tears to our generation. The imperatives of, of Scripture are not there to heap legalism on you. They are there to help you walk in fellowship with the triune God. They're not there to kill your joy. They're there for your joy. And far too often we blow them off. Uh, the the, the uh, Westminster Catechism starts out, uh, and if you don't like catechisms, I pray for you, but... Uh, the Westminster Catechism starts out with a fantastic question. What is the chief end of man? And the answer is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. It aims solidly at our text that fellowship with God results in joy for the believer. And that joy comes as we walk in the ways that He has prescribed. So we are to live by His power for His glory. We are to ask, is this what he wants in my life? Can I give him thanks for this thing that I'm about to do? Is this what glorifies him? Is this what makes his name known in all of the earth? Is this what honors him? If everyone knew that I was engaged in this activity, in this pattern of life, in this behavior, would it exalt the king or would it bring shame to his name? Many people, young and old, struggle with the whole idea of guidance in their life and, and will say, well, I wonder, again, this is a, a question of reflection about what's gone on in our lives in the past and what will happen in the future. And people will, well, what does God want for my life? I wonder what he would say about how I should live tomorrow. And often what I find is this, that we have lived in such a mystified culture for so long that what they're really thinking will happen is that we'll, God will show up and, and, and somehow supernaturally reveal to you who you will marry in all of these different circumstances of your lives. But if you really break it down... God has answered the question for every one of us of what He wants out of our lives. He's answered it in 66 books. It's called the Bible. We are to honor Him 
By knowing the Word of God. Why does biblical literacy matter? So that a pastor can stand up and say, my church knows the Bible? So that we can be really proud of ourselves and our religious capacity and our understanding of the Greek and the Hebrew text so that we can rejoice in our erudite theology? No! The reason that biblical literacy matters is because your fellowship, my fellowship with God matters. It is the only foundation for real lasting joy. And it only comes when we understand the Word of God and we abide in Christ in walking in the ways that He has commanded us. Some will say, well, why, why must we not sin? And I think that this, some people will be indignant at that question. And God forgives indignance and arrogance. But I think it's important to understand this question. The better that we understand why we shouldn't sin. I had a boss one time when I was young that constantly told me, Clatworthy, preach the why. And I think that inside the biblical text, the why often matters. Why should we not sin? One, because sin is something that is hated by God. It is contrary to the nature of God. We've already read, in Him is no darkness at all. As Brian encouraged us this morning, the, the holiness of God should be before our worship and it should be before all of our lives. And the reason that we should refrain from sinning isn't that we would be something better before the eyes of men, but because ultimately sin is loathed, is hated by God. And that should be enough for us. We should be able to close the book and go home and if it's offensive to God, okay. But there's more. Sin is wrong in and of itself. Sin objectively harms others. It brings shame. It leads to death. It does not build up. It fails to honor God in His nature and for all that He has given us. When I was a little boy, I think I was... Some of you pour out contempt on children that don't behave well. And when I see that in our body, I just think, I am so thankful that I'm grown. Now... Generally, I get my share of contempt too, but it's not the point. When, when I was a kid, I think I was, if there was an athletic event in the Olympics for pouting, I could have won. And I feel like I'm probably in fellowship of good company. And my grandmother would always say this to me. She, she would, to try and kind of prod me out of it. Stop being ugly. And she would set me up sometimes, and I do this with my children too, drives them nuts and brings me such joy. She'd prop me up in front of a mirror and make me look at how I, I'm, my outward disposition. And the reality is, I, I think that's a good way to put it. Quit being ugly. Because sin is ugly. There's nothing beautiful about sin. Now, it's enticing. There's pleasure in it for a while. But it ultimately lacks any objective goodness. That's why we shouldn't sin. Sin also caused the suffering of Christ. Now ultimately we know that it was love for which Christ willingly laid down His life. But sin is the condition. 
It is the circumstance that brought about the suffering of Christ. And every sin that we commit adds to the suffering of Christ if we are in Christ. Sin caused the suffering. Sin was the reason that the wrath of God was poured out upon His Son. So does sin bring beauty? No, it's ugly. Because the work of Christ in the sense of the wrath of God being poured out upon His Son is not something that we rejoice in in the sense of what is happening there. We rejoice in the salvation, but sin ultimately causes suffering. And the greatest one to suffer because of sin is Christ. When, when I find suffering brothers or sisters in Christ, often they feel so, and it's so easy to fall into this, they feel disconnected from Christ. Well, he must not have experienced the type of being sinned against that I have experienced. Oh, what a lie. Every pain that you have ever felt because of being sinned against or your own sin, I promise you that Christ has felt the weight of the consequence of your sin, of that sin. Sin also dishonors what it means for the gospel to be powerful. Sin and Christians who willingly engage in sin are repudiating the power of the gospel. You remember the song written by Top Lady, marred by John Wesley, uh, Rock of Ages? Top Lady wrote correctly, and it was later changed, but always sing these verses because this is the truth. Be of sin, the double cure. Save me from its guilt and its power. Top Lady's theology dictated that the atoning sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ delivers His people. At the point that we come to saving faith in Christ, sin no longer has authority over us. It is Christ who is the King. It is He who wields power in our lives. Now, that doesn't mean that we no longer sin. But it does mean that it is not sin that is Lord over our life. It means that we're giving in to that sin. We're capitulating. Sin has no power over the gospel. And when we sin, we muddy, we, we make unclear the power of the gospel in our lives. See, we don't have to spend our lives trying to gain enough power in our own strength to overcome uh, there are types of theology, and this is, and I don't want to get in the ditch here because we've got to move on, but this is kind of the direction, lightly, that John Wesley has taken so many people, and there were others before him. They teach this type of theology that you're saved, but then there's another category, that, and this is, I think Wesley's words in that hymn are, Save me from its guilt and make, or save me from the wrath and make me pure, I think. And the idea is that, that we are saved from the consequence of sin, and then there are some Christians who go on to grow out of sin and to become pure and righteous. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that when we are immersed in Christ by the Spirit of God, we are made new. Behold, all things become new. We are positionally justified in the sight of God. And then the Spirit of God begins to mold us into the image of Christ. And sin no longer has dominion over the believer. Save me from its guilt. Justify me. 
also set me free from its power. And that is exactly what Christ has done. And that is what John writes in the direction of my little children. I'm writing these things. My beloved children. This is a term of affection. Uh, my, my beloved children. I'm writing these things to you about fellowship with God. That you might not sin. You see, when, when we sin, it doesn't mean that we have no salvation. But it does mean that our fellowship with God, our intimacy, our walk with Him is affected. If, if the one thing that makes a difference in our lives is fellowship, then John is writing for our joy and God's glory that we might not sin, that we might actually abide in Christ, that we might actually have fellowship with Him so that we can endure the circumstances of our lives. And He doesn't say, now grit your teeth and push through sin. He points back to the reality that we must rest in the propitiation, in the atonement of Christ. Reason out all of these things, he says. You already have the power to overcome sin. Now walk in, the, in light of the relationship that you have with Christ. Don't walk in light of the flesh. Walk in light of Christ. Sin is, is contrary also to our profession of faith. It undermines our testimony. People who have come to know Christ. Christians are those who claim to have been set free from sin. And so when we engage in sinful behaviors, when we brush aside the imperatives of Scripture... We are acting in unbelief. Sin robs us of joy. Sin makes a Christian miserable. Sin will mar your conscience. It will lead you to depression and to a, a feeling of worthlessness and guilt. The, the reason that we, we, we encourage here, and John encourages us here, to, to not engage in sinful behavior is because sin really damages us. Does Jesus atone for our sin and deliver us into heaven? Yes, but as we sin in the body, it really can do damage. There is no doubt in eight years of being in pastoral ministry that, that in very objective, concrete terms, I can see how sin destroys the body of Christ. Sin leads us to doubt. It makes us feel unworthy of our relationship with God and of our real fellowship with Him. It, it, it makes us come to points in our lives where we've immersed ourselves into sin for so long and we think, do I really have a relationship with God at all? We can be overwhelmed in feelings of condemnation. Now for some people, I don't want I, I to speak wrongly here. For some people, I believe that the reality is you're not in Christ and you need to repent and believe, come to Christ, that God really needs to save you. But I think for those who are in Christ, who are genuinely saved, who are immersed in sin, because we can sin, it brings us to a point of spiritual depression and being overwhelmed with feelings of, of condemnation. And it leads us in the direction of hopelessness. You see, there's this, this vein in the church that is always worried that we're going to fall into complacency about sin. And so they stand on this line and they chew everybody out and they point out all of the faults and they play the part of Satan and accuse everyone in the church of all the petty little trite things that they see in their lives. And do you know where they drive people often? To the ditch of hopelessness. 
Well, I am a sinner. God must just want to be done with me. And so John breaks into that type of thinking. And he, he says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Don't fall into complacency. Don't think that the imperatives of Scripture don't matter. But on the other hand, don't fall into hopelessness. Don't grow weary in sin. Walk in light of the fellowship that you have with God. So, so what are we to do? Are, are we just to, again, grit our teeth and just, we're just going to stop sinning. We're going to make a resolution. Well, in a sense, yes, we have to be resolved that we want to mortify sin in our lives. And, and beloved, I, I promise you this. We all have a mounting list of sins that we need to mortify. Arrogance and pride. Stubbornness, slander, gossip, all of those things need to be put to death in the body. But in the fullest sense, it's not something we just grit our teeth and do in our own strength. We are to rest in the comfort that Pastor John brings in this text. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Don't be defeated in your fight against sin. Remember, verse 9, chapter 1, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Rest in Christ, in the relationship that you have with Him. Remember His atoning sacrifice, that He is the singular atoning sacrifice, the Lamb of God who has taken away the sins of all of those who have called upon His name. In the moment where you seek to live a life pleasing to God. It is a, not a life walking in your own righteousness. It is a life standing on the atonement of Christ. Right. And knowing that He and His blood and His suffering is the only thing that will ever bring you into right relationship with the Holy God. Don't be overwhelmed in your sin. Be overwhelmed by the grace of God. Be of good courage, dear brother. Be of good courage, dear sister. He has taken every ounce of your sin upon Himself. He is the wrath-bearing sacrifice. And we have freedom indeed today because of one man. And that is Christ. He is the one who has borne every one of our sins. As we think about the future, often it's hard and we get discouraged and we get kind of perplexed by circumstances and what ifs and how is the world going to turn out? I heard a pastor from this pulpit one time say, church, the only thing that will be different about you five years from now is the goals that you set for yourself. But can I tell you this? I believe the only thing that will make a difference in your life in the future and, and change you genuinely and lastingly is not the goals you set for yourself. It is the God that you rest in. It is knowing His goodness and His kindness and the scope of His love for you. And what John is saying, and we're going to get to this. I don't want to get into the weeds because I'll not have enough to get through next week. But what he is saying is this, beloved, 
I'm writing these things to you so that you don't sin. But if you do sin, remember the propitiation of Christ. Remember His sacrifice. And He is the propitiation. He is the propitiator. Not only for our sins, but the sins of the whole world. He's not making a statement here about the extent of the atonement. He's making a statement here about the sufficiency of Christ. And he's seeking to remind the church, in your sin, you will sin. But remember, the only one who can, who can expiate and take away your sin is not you. It's the Lamb of God. Rest in Him. And as you begin to rest in Him, John knows, because he's learned this through experience. As you begin to rest in Christ, as you begin to give away your own righteousness, as you give up the fight for you to believe that you're in your own strength, you can really be righteous. And as you lean into Christ and in Him alone, then you will find motivation and a drive to no longer sin. The things of this earth will grow strangely dim in light of the grace of the atonement of Almighty God. That's what John is saying. Are we set free? Absolutely we are. This morning, the greatest captor over all of humanity, and that is sin and death, those chains have been loosed for everyone who has called upon the name of the Lord. So the question is this, is your relationship conditioned by His atonement or by your works? That's the question. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come before you so thankful for the freedom we have in Christ. So thankful for the joy that we can have openly in our nation. Father, we do thank you for all of those who serve our nation and protect our freedom. And Father, we are thankful for America in a sense. But our greatest joy is the fellowship that we have with you. And we know we wouldn't have that fellowship if it was left up to us. And we would still be dead in our trespasses and sins. But you, in the right time, sent your Son to be a propitiation for the sins of the ungodly, for everyone who would call upon your name. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your mercy. And if there's one here today that is yet unbelieving, one that's self-deceived maybe, Father, I pray that you would do what only you can do and open their blinded eyes so that they may see their need for the gospel and they may run to Christ in repentance and faith. Father, would you help us in our individual lives not to marginalize sin's consequence, but what might we see it for what it really is. Something that dishonors you, that you are against, something that is ugly, something that ultimately brings harm to our neighbor and to ourselves. And Father, might we walk in repentance. Might we turn from our arrogance and our religious pride and from our, the litany of sin. Might you give us grace knowing that we have already been given power over sin through the blood of Jesus.